Welcome back from Revival Winter Edition. How you guys doing? All right. Nobody, nobody struggled too much. We only had one fracture, and he lived. We're grateful for that. Glad to be back in the pulpit with you guys, and thank you for making time to be here. I'm stoked about this, and I'm excited about the next several months of True North. Um, and even though we're jumping back into Hebrews, there's a lot of things that are going to carry over for us through the next um, the, the next several sermons that are thematic to our weekend at, uh, at, at, the, at the retreat center. So keep that in mind. I'm going to be doing some things differently in the next few weeks that I hope you'll see and appreciate. With that said, I want to I bring to your attention a guy by the name of Felipe Petit. He is a petite man, but that's not the point of his name. This guy was the first one in 1974 to, to create a connection between the Twin Towers. Connection was a wire and on the morning of August 7th, he walked across the Twin Towers from one end to the other. Multiple times. This, this cat, I mean, he's a circus dude, but he, uh, without anyone's permission, put the wire across the buildings and delicately and faithfully did this multiple times. News cameras began to surround him and record him and wonder what on earth he was doing. This is not something the city of New York had approved of or endorsed. In fact, he later was arrested, uh, but he did something remarkable. He walked from one end to the other, and he clearly did not fall. This isn't a bad story. This is a good story. He walked across. And you might wonder, well, how might I do this, Pastor Rod? If I want to walk across from 140 to 150, what is the key to making sure that I make it from one end to the other without falling to the floor in, in a splattering glory? Here's what he said, or at least here's how he's quoted he says, uh, or the, the guy who's quoting him in this, in this story here, this new story, understandably, the, the tightrope walker has no truck with a margin of error. Literally, there can't be any. False steps occur only when we are told, false steps occur only when we are told very firmly because of a lack of concentration. And, and really, that is critical not only for tightrope walking, but also life walking with Christ. It is your lack of concentration which will utterly deter you from finishing the race strongly and doing what Christ has called you to do. Um, and we're going to carry this through here. here. Here's the problem in this text tonight. The, the, the Hebrew audience is uh, struggling with perhaps not focusing on the object of their faith, namely Christ Jesus. And the problem that the preacher is attending to now is, guys, you need to focus on Jesus. And this, that's why this whole sermon series is called Jesus is Better. Because everything in comparison to Jesus is going to be inferior, which is why we made shirts for you guys. We want you to wear these shirts and take them to school with you and wear them wherever you go. If you wear them in the gym, you cut off the sleeves, that's your thing. Great, do that. We want people to know Jesus is better than any other alternatives. And when we lose sight of that reality, that's when your Christian faith will stumble. This couple weekends ago, we went to the, the winter camp. Part of my desire was for all of us to remember we're mortal, we're going to die, and therefore... The supreme object of your attention and your affection should be Jesus. There's nothing more important. Everything else you do in your life from that fountainhead will benefit if Jesus is the priority. And so a preacher Hebrews comes along and says, look, guys, you need to remember that Jesus is the most important person in your life. You need to stay focused on him and let that drive you to the end. You're walking a very perilous life. I mean, you're not tightrope walking, but you're doing something dangerous. You're living in a dangerous world with sin and fallenness and all these sorts of things. And therefore, the only way you're going to make it from one end to the other 
is by concentrating and focusing on Jesus. And the author of Hebrews is concerned that the Hebrew audience is losing sight of that. And so tonight, he's going to introduce us to a comparison. One of the best things to do when you're trying to help someone understand the nature of something, you compare it to something else. When you say, well, let me explain why dogs are so much better. Here's a cat. Oh, I get it now. It's so clear. I understand entirely. And then the other person, clearly, you know, they're sanctified. They get it. They walk away happy because you introduce them to a dog. Well, in the same vein, uh, the preacher in Hebrews is going to say, look, we all respect and admire Moses. And then he's going to say, and here's why Jesus is better even than Moses. Now, you remember in chapter 1, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is better than angels. And we kind of scratched our head and said, well, I don't think I've ever struggled with that. But in this time frame, they would recognize angels are powerful. They have great authority. They were the, um, the mediaries of the Old Testament law, despite the fact that it was given through Moses. And so now they're saying, okay, great. We understand Jesus is better than angels. He's more powerful, more authoritative, etc. Now we're going to hold up this really classy figure called Moses, whom everybody who was ever uh, trained in Sabbath school, was ever an Israelite, would have said, Moses is the man. Moses, I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, those are all the patriarchs of the faith. But Moses, he's the one that God used to deliver it all, to start this thing really in earnest. And so Jesus is now compared to Moses. And on your notes, you see Jesus is greater than Moses. And I don't think most of you are going to struggle with that. But this audience would have. But even if that's not your struggle tonight, there are some really seriously helpful principles at work for us this evening. And one of them in particular I'm really passionate about because I've been burned by this and I want you to avoid that. With that said, we're going to jump into our text here, and we're going to look at some heroes of the faith, particularly Moses, and understand how a Christian should, under, uh, a Christian should think about the heroes of yesteryear, or even the heroes of present. How we uh, love our heroes and honor them, while at the same time not falling prey to letting them steal the limelight from Jesus Christ. So work with me to, or walk with me to Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. And I want you to, before you go any further, just notice the first word is therefore. And of course, as a good Bible student, you should always ask yourself, why is the therefore, therefore, what's he building on? And he's building on verses 17 and 18, but I'm going to just put, plug you into verse 18, just so you kind of get the gist of where he's coming from. He, he just got done saying Jesus is the one who had to be made like his brother, so he could be the uh, merciful and faithful high priest. In verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And then he says, therefore, that being the case, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now, in this six verses that we're looking at tonight, consider Jesus is the only imperative. It's the only command in all six verses that we're looking at. That ought to tell you that this is an important piece of information here. Consider Jesus. What about Jesus? Well, he's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Um, he was the sent one. That's what the word apostle means. He was sent of the Father to deliver a message to us. Not only that, to reiterate chapter 2, verse 17, he's the high priest of our confession. We're Christians, and we recognize that we don't go to a church and confess our sins to a priest. We don't go into that box, the confessional, and have another person on the side open it up, and then you talk to that person and say, well, Father, I've sinned, and I've sinned in these ways. We don't do that. We don't do that because Jesus is our high priest. We go to him. He's the high priest of our confession. Verse 2, um, he was the high priest who was faithful to him who appointed him. That's the father. The father, father appointed Jesus. Now introduce Moses. Stage right. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than even Moses, 
Hebrew, and the Hebrew would say, wow, Jesus is greater than Moses. I think they knew this, but he was reminding them. And he says, look, he's uh, as much more glorious, he deserves much more glory as the builder of the house has more glory or more honor than the house itself. One of my favorite buildings in downtown L.A., and I've yet to go inside, and I'm hoping to correct this as soon as possible, is the Disney Concert Hall. Have you ever seen this thing? It looks like a, an aluminum can that someone stripped open. <laughs> they cut it open and they ripped it open. It's off of the freeway, and it's this uh, metallic, uh, I don't have a picture, but I should have put this here, a uh, metallic structure that's meant to be uh, very conducive to listening to music. And I've been wanting to hear some bands there that I'm really excited about. But everyone looks at that and says, wow, it's beautiful. Or if you don't like modern art, you hate it. Well, whatever you feel, you look at that and you say, oh, that's really cool. I wonder who built it. Not many people look at the building and say, wow, I want to worship the building. You look at the building and recognize, oh, someone made that. And that's really creative and uh, artful that they did that. Well, that's the same point that the author is making here. The preacher is saying, look, Moses was, the, was part of the architecture work. He, he helped build the house with the father. But the father, through the work of the son, is the actual builder. He deserves more glory. Wouldn't you agree? And of course, the audience would have been like, well, yeah, of course that is the case. And that's what he says in verse 4. Every house is built by somebody, and the builder... But the builder of all things is God. The God. God is the one who's behind our salvation. God's the one who's behind our faith. Now Moses was faithful. He was faithful in all God's house as a servant, a high-ranking servant, a powerful servant, a very important servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So Moses had a very significant role, and he's acknowledging that. He's saying, yeah, that's good. But, verse 6, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, Therefore, because he's the son, he's greater in authority, greater in power, greater in glory than the servant of the house. Um, none of us has servants at our homes, probably. Uh, but you might have someone come and cut your lawn. You might have someone come, and if you, if you, you know, family does, has a lot, a, a lot of real estate, they might have someone come and even clean your house for you. You know, you might have someone come and clean once a week or every day. That's kind of the idea here. If someone came to your house knocking on the door in the uh, the, the, the guys who cut the lawn were there, and they said, oh, hello, welcome to the, uh, you know, the such-and-such residence. Your friends aren't going to fawn over that person and say, wow, I can't believe you're, you're, you're who you are. And no, you're, you're, they're here to see you. They're here to see someone with greater honor. Not shaming those people. They have a great job to do in the same way that Moses had a great job to do. But the point is, the owner of the house, the residents of the house, possess greater glory. I know this is like obvious, but I, I need you to understand and feel the weight of this here. He's trying to say, look, this is... So clear, it's so plain. So love Moses, appreciate Moses, exalt Moses for what he did, but recognize Jesus is far more important, far deserving of greater honor. Second half of verse 6. Here's something that's going to be, you're going to feel this the rest of the book as we go through it. He says this, And we are his house. We are the house of God. We are his temple. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Essentially, he says, you are the house of God. You are his building. You are his people if, if you cling and hold fast to your boasting and your confidence in your hope, which is interesting because we say as a church, like, well, once someone gets saved, it's impossible for you to lose it. You can't lose what God gave you. Otherwise, we'd all lose our salvation. So he offers this conditional. That's where the if comes from. We are his house. If we hold fast to our confidence and our hope, our boasting and our hope. And we'll talk about what he's trying to do there. But all this to say, Jesus is greater than Moses in honor, 
love Moses, appreciate Moses, but when you look at Moses, see that Jesus is really the, the object that he himself is even pointing to. Back at verse 1, let me point this out to you. When he, first of all, notice who he's talking to. Holy brothers. Now again, notice, ladies, you're included in this. He's talking to the whole family of believers that are part of the Hebrews. Holy brothers. If you were in Christ, before God, you are holy. You are set apart. You're perfect in righteousness. And he refers to you that way. Therefore, holy brothers, those who have been called out, you who share in a heavenly calling. And that's true. If you're a Christian here, you share the same calling that I do. Not, you're not a pastor, but you share the calling of living like and looking like and following Christ. We all share that calling. So he says, therefore, heavenly brothers, you who share in this heavenly calling, here's the imperative, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here's what the first thing we need to do. If we're going to do this thing right, we're going to consider Jesus greater than Moses and really any other hero of our faith, we need to do something very specific. You need to learn to take your thinking about, uh, about Jesus and make that a regular pattern of your life. Here's how I put it. Point number one, train your thoughts to return to Jesus. And, and there's a sense of con con continuity there, right? Train your thoughts to return to Jesus. That's on purpose. The word consider means to think about carefully, to, uh, to ruminate on, to uh, give great attention to. Consider Jesus. One of the coolest things about your brain is that it's far more capable than most of you realize. I've looked into memory training, you know, like not the stuff that you find in the app store, like people that do this for a living. There's this guy named uh, Nelson Dellis. He is the five-time winner of the USA Memory Championship. And here's some of the things that these guys do. Here's a picture of him. That doesn't really help anything, but there's a picture of him. Some of the things they do in preparation. They go to this championship, and they, they're given a list of 300 random words. And they have 15 minutes to memorize all 300 words. You want to know how many he was able to memorize? 300. 15 minutes, 300 random words. He was able to compute all that and shove it in his brain and then recite it. It gets better. There is a long-term memory component to this championship. And so a month before the championship, they're given a, a random thing to commit to memory. For instance, the periodic table. You need to know the element name, the abbreviation, the atomic weight, and everything else about it, and you will be quizzed on it. The whole thing. Amazing. Or they'll give you the Rock and Roll Hall, and Hall of Fame, where you have to memorize the inductee name, the year inducted, the song they were inducted for, Football Hall of Fame, same idea, Academy Awards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's given this whole thing. And of course, the goal and the object is to memorize exhaustively everything about that thing so that when they ask you a question, you're able to recite it, and that's what he did. On top of that, you have to memorize two decks of cards in under five minutes. Random deck of cards, shuffle it, they deliver it to him. His job is to memorize that entire two deck and then be able to recite it in front of a, a watching audience. Your mind is capable of far more than you give it credit for. Not to say that you have to do memory training, but <clears throat> there really is no such thing as a bad memory versus a good memory or you know, a bad mind versus a good mind. The, the difference is really a trained mind versus an untrained mind. And that same thing applies to our, our faith. That's how sanctification works. You're teaching your mind and your your inner life to think a certain way, to follow a certain path, and to build a mental groove. In fact, that's what your habits are. They're mental grooves. You're teaching yourself to think and, a, and act in a certain way. And over time, that becomes solidified and cemented. That's how your mind works. And so when we're training our, our thoughts to, think, to return to Jesus, we're doing it in, in three specific areas. Okay, here's, here's when I want you to do this. I want you to train your mind to think and return to Jesus when you're making decisions. When we talk about Jesus being the uh, author of our faith, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we say, um, 
consider Jesus the apostle of our faith. He's the apostle. He's the sent one. God sent Jesus to deliver a message to us. And our job then is to think about the message that Jesus delivered, namely the gospel and all of his ethical teaching, and to apply that to our day-to-day lives. That's really the point. When we're making decisions, we should ask ourselves, okay, what do I Uh, what do I know about Jesus and about the scriptures that helps inform me about this particular situation? When I was in high school, actually, and I I won't tell you whether or not I had one of these, but a really popular thing in high school was these bracelets. You guys ever see these? WWJD. They stood for, what would Jesus do? And it was all the rage. There was even, there was a, a song on Christian radio called, what would Jesus do based off of the bracelet? And so the idea, of course, is as you go throughout your day, you're looking at your bracelet, and you're like, oh, yeah, and my slap bracelet next to that. Now, what would Jesus do in this situation? You know, what would Jesus do in Algebra 2? Well, probably skip class, I think, because it makes no sense. Well, anyway, the idea here is uh, it's a good idea. There's dangers in this, but it's a good idea of saying, okay, what would Jesus do in, in my situation? How do I think God's thoughts after him? Maybe a better way to do this for you in particular is is this. Not what would Jesus do, but what did he do? How did he live his life? This morning as I was reading our DBR in Matthew chapter 14, I was so struck. I'm always struck by this. Uh, Jesus just had one of his close relatives die. And so naturally, when we go through that, we want to spend time kind of by ourselves so we can mourn. We want to cry. We want to think about them and remember them. And so Jesus does that. He, he, He departs from the crowd, but then... The crowd follows him. And at this point, I think if I were Jesus, I'd be like, yo, give me some space. I've been doing stuff for you. Give me, I need a minute. Just give me a minute, yo. He doesn't do that. He sees the crowd and the text says, and he had compassion for them. His compassion was greater than his own sense of self-preservation. What did Jesus do? Jesus prioritized people above even his real serious emotional needs. What did Jesus do? He prioritized people. For, for you, young person, when you're making decisions, one of the considerations for you in every decision you make is, how do I love people like Christ did? How do I serve others? How can I best use my life such that I will love God greatly, maximally, and love people greatly? Whatever you do for your job, it should be, how do I best serve the people in the world? How do I best uh, use my gifts, my talents, and my times to be a good steward of the, the faith that God has given me, the, 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 the gift set? We're thinking about someone to date. The question you should ask is not, is she beautiful and, or is he cute? Uh, the question you should ask is, does that person help me glorify God better? Will I be a better disciple because of that person's impact on my life? When you're thinking about what school to go to, the question you should not ask is, who has the highest ranking school in my field? The question is, okay, where can I get a great education and still plug into a great church that will help sustain my faith so that I can love God and love people really well? When you're thinking about who to ask to winter formal, you should say, what is Pastor Rodwin? I'm just kidding. <laughs> what, is, what would honor God and, and who I ask? Who's going to help me keep the night focused on the right thing? Have a great time, have good food and dance or whatever else, but still making sure that I'm doing it to the glory of God. Um, enter Jesus into your conversation and into your thoughts, and I promise you, the more you practice this, the better you will get at saying, okay, what did Jesus do, and how does that apply to my situation? Really, the best way to do this is practicing every day by meditating on the text and examining the life of Christ and his words and saying, how does this apply to my every day? Another factor of this is not only um, when I make decisions, should I 
take my thoughts to Jesus, but also when I'm tempted to sin. Jesus is our high priest. And the high priest was someone in Israel's life that would be the, the figurehead of Israel's spiritual existence. He would be the one to whom everyone would look and say, he's the holy one. He's the one that, you know, if I'm, if I'm weak, I, I could trust my high priest to be strong. And Israel has a sordid history of people that failed miserably in this role. But Jesus did not. When we're tempted to sin, we can look to Jesus, the one who um, suffered when he himself was tempted, and say, look, Jesus can help me. Here's the thing. When you're tempted to sin, here's what I mean by this. When you're tempted to sin, the first thought should be, Lord Jesus, help me. Because I'm angry at her. I want to punch this guy in the face. I want to boast in my amazingness or whatever it is. I, I, I want people to think highly of me or better yet, I need, to tell, I need to share the gospel with this guy and I'm afraid of what he's going to think of me. Lord, help me. But sometimes, even if you do get that far, you just stay there. And, or you convince yourself to go the opposite direction. When you go to Jesus, you need to think about how Jesus went to his own father. Remember, Jesus went to him with loud pleadings and cries. Jesus prayed. When you're in that situation of temptation, know that you can go to Jesus and pray seriously and earnestly, and Jesus hears you and he empathizes with you. He sympathizes because he himself wore flesh, and by the way, still has flesh, and he'll have flesh for eternity. Jesus knows. Go to Jesus when you're tempted to sin. Stop yourself in your tracks and say, look, I'm not going to give in to this. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go to Jesus so that I can find help in my time of need. Better yet, how about this? I gave in to my sin. I gave, I gave myself over to it. When you're guilty of sin, go to Jesus. One of the worst things to do as a Christian is, uh, is like you, you, you find yourself in a situation where you just gave in to this nasty sin that you know you hate. One of the ones that comes to mind often when I'm doing counseling is pornography. Uh, people will tell me the moment after giving into that silliness and that utter foolishness, it, uh, foolishness is guilt and shame, self-loathing. I hate myself because I gave myself over to that sin that I despise. The last thing you want to do in your sin is go to Jesus. The first thing you should do in your sin is go to Jesus. And I know, everyone, every one of us has been there where we feel like, I don't want to point my face to heaven. God will strike me dead. I'm, I don't look at me. We all know what that feels like. But never forget that Jesus is the great high priest who sympathizes with your weaknesses and invites you to bring your sin and shame to him. And in fact, that is the knee-jerk reaction of a godly Christian, of recognizing their sin and shame and taking it right to the only place that can actually resolve it, to Jesus himself. Consider Jesus means not only to recognize him as your Lord and Master, you should, but recognizing him as your apostle, the one who sends the message to you, and your high priest, the one who sympathizes, the one who is not only uh, your high priest in the, in the sense that he's your spiritual leader, but he's the one who died for your sin. The sin that you just committed in that moment, in that act, is the very sin that he says, and I paid for that. Now come to me. Draw near to me. Consider Jesus. Train your thoughts to return to Jesus over and over again. He's going to compare Jesus now to, to Moses. And then I have several observations here that are going to be, I trust, helpful for you. Uh, verse 2. Um, he just said, Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him. That's God who appointed Jesus. Just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house, 
For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more glory or more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Here's this. This is a key here. To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So Moses fulfilled his role of pointing to the future prophet and apostle, Jesus, who would come later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we said, look, Jesus has greater honor, his greater position, greater uh, power. Therefore, when we look at heroes of the faith, we need to keep firmly in mind that we can have those heroes and we can esteem them and, and love them. But we should never, point number two, let heroes overshadow the hero. One of my heroes goes back to my high school years. Uh, many of you guys know, I, 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 my, my high school years, my dad wasn't around, and so I felt like I was running with a, with a limp. And I, I really craved that fatherly affection and attention from someone that could tell me, look, Rod, you're going to be okay. You don't have to know how to change the oil in your car. Learn a few things, and you're going to be all right. And so when God put people in my life that had some semblance of stability, I really gravitated toward that. And one of the guys that did that for me is Dr. Munderland. I talked to you, to you about him before, but, and he's, I mean, one of the people in my life that just means everything to me. And Dr. Munderland was my, my English teacher for, for one year, but he was my, he was our Bible club sponsor all four years. He was a mentor. He took me to get double-doubles. He gave me dating advice one, one time. Um, not, not that I was looking for it necessarily, but I was with this gal, and we weren't dating or anything, but before we were about to go leave somewhere, he's like, hey, Rod. I said, yeah? He said, and he... <laughs> Holds out his hand and says, hey, no mint, no kiss. Okay, doctor, should you not be encouraging me to do that? So he had this mint out, he gave me the mint, and we walked away. It was, it was, it was silly, and it, for whatever reason, that sticks out among the many things that happened. Um, but he, he, was, he was an incredible man who often gave me all the counsel and advice I needed but what was special about him is that he was incredibly understated. He wasn't the guy that was looking for attention. He wasn't the funniest teacher. He wasn't the most anything teacher, except one of the things that stands out about him, he was remarkably unremarkable, except for his care for other people. When you were talking with him, you felt like he was talking to you and only you, and he cared about you, and he really communicated this well, such that when I went to his funeral, there were hundreds of students present and past and way past that showed up to honor the man that made an impression upon them. And many of them were not Christians, but they respected him. And they, they honored the fact that this man had shown them love and he lived out the values of what they understood to be the Christian faith in ways that stood out to them. But again, going back to him, one of the things that stood out to me is that he was unassuming. He wasn't about him. He was really living his life in humble submission to the king and he pointed always to Christ. His, his room was decorated with scriptures. I don't know how he got away with this. I guess he was well-beloved of the staff. He had scriptures. He had Bibles in all, every part of the room. It's like his whole room. When you walked into it, you were invited into his faith because that was who he was. He loved people. And he stands to be one of the heroes of my life, even to this day. And his life still impacts me. I still think about him. And if you ever see my backpack, I always point this out. If you ever see my backpack, I have this leather keychain that hangs on the back. It's a strand of four leather straps that Dr. Munderland made for me. And he said, hey, I want you to remember, the Gospels are four stories that tell about one life. Remember that with this leather strap. And I've kept it now for years. And it's been, well, how long has it been since it's been in high school? So almost 20 years ago. 
That man made a remarkable impact because he was exactly what I'm saying here. He was a hero who never overshadowed the hero. He always pointed back to Christ and he always wanted us to do the same. What I want you to do is when you think about the heroes in your life, whoever they are, and just think about that. Who are the heroes in your life right now? Who would you say, this person is my go-to? This is my, uh, my model. This is the person who I look up to. This is the person who inspires me and motivates me. Who is that? And are they a godly model for you? Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, and he pointed to the future of, hey, don't look at me. Look to the future of who God's going to provide for you. So let me remind you of just a few things about this. First of all, you need to realize that the best heroes will always point you to the ultimate hero. Whoever it is in your life that you're looking up to, you need to recognize that that person, if they're doing their job well, should always say, look to Jesus. Don't put your ultimate trust in man. Man uh, is uh, finite and incapable of scratching that itch and meeting the need that you have. Look to Jesus. And this is honestly, young person, I would love for you to follow me as I follow Christ, but ultimately, I want you to see in me, me pointing somewhere else and say, look, look to Jesus. Jesus is your hope. Jesus is your power. Jesus is your, your, you know, your strength. He's going to be the one who carries you through. Don't look to man. Don't let man be your hope and your help. Look to Jesus. And Moses um, pointed to that future prophet. He wrote in, in Deuteronomy 18, he says, look, the Lord's going to provide you a prophet like me. He's going to be the one you need to listen to. Moses, in many ways, was like, a, was like a best man at a wedding. I had the privilege of conducting a wedding of two of my former students next month. Stoked by that. And I'm hoping to do a couple more. Uh, several more, if you'd give me the option. I get to do their, their wedding, and I'm so excited because I, you know, I took them through high school, and they, they mean the world to me. Uh, but I'm sure that the best man that the, the groom has selected is not going to, at the wedding, make a big scene and dress differently than all the other groomsmen. He's not going to be, uh, when I'm conducting the wedding, he's not going to be over there dancing and trying to get attention. And I, the, the best man's job is not to be the center of attention. The best man's job is to make sure the couple is the center of attention and the groom has to not think about anything. He's supposed to have the rings, he's supposed to help make preparations and take everything off the plate of the groom so that the groom can stay focused on being married. Moses did not take the attention off of himself. He was, the guy, he was the man that God used to give the law, but he was never about saying, look at me, I'm the most amazing man in the world. In fact, Scripture says Moses was incredibly humble, the most meek man in all the earth. So the best heroes are not going to point you to themselves. The best heroes are going to point you to Christ. And they have a confident humility that, em that emphasizes Christ being the one that you need to look to. Your leaders, I'm confident of this, are never going to say, hey, look to me and I will be your answer. We're going to say, no, look to Jesus. In fact, one time I, I heard about a counseling situation where one of y'all called a leader and the first thing they said is, did you pray about this yet? And I, 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 from what I gather, I was like, oh, no, not yet. <laughs> okay, let's hang up, pray, and then let's talk. Call me back when you're done. Let's pray, no, let's, let's, let's talk Go pray, though. Go to Jesus. Jesus first, because Jesus is better. Jesus is better than your pastor. Jesus is better than your leader. Jesus is better than your parents. Jesus is a friend that never fails. Jesus is the one who's never going to disappoint you ultimately. He's going to disappoint you in the short term, to be sure. He's going to do things you don't like. He's going to put people in your life you don't want. He's going to take things away from you you, you wanted to keep. Jesus is going to do a lot of things to offend you. But here's the difference between Jesus and us. Jesus does only what is good and right for you and will bring most glory to him. And the best heroes will point you to that ultimate hero. Choose your heroes wisely, young person. Choose them wisely. 
I would ask you this as your, as your friend and as your youth pastor, who gets the majority of your attention? Who is the voice in your ear and in, on, in your eyes that you give devotion to? Like I have a lot of YouTube people that I subscribe to. I love M- MKBHD. I love uh, the Chris, the tech dude. I mean, there's lots of people that I follow, but I'm very particular about making sure that I'm crafting and cultivating who it is that I give my attention to. Because who you give your attention to is who you give your life to. Your job should be to make sure that Jesus is always central in your attention and that no hero, lowercase h, ever becomes capital H hero in your life, that they become the end-all, be-all. Why? Well, because even the best human heroes will disappoint. Even the best of men are men at best. And that's the problem. Many of the people that I have looked up to not many, I guess that's overstating the case. There have been pastors that I have loved and followed who have disqualified themselves from the ministry because they gave themselves over to some terrible sin. And there are people that I told you about, students that I've, high schoolers that I grew up with who followed Christ and then they no longer follow Christ. Um, I've had people in my life that meant everything to me and they failed miserably. Not just failed and like, oh man, they just made a mistake. No, they departed from Christ, left Christ for something else stupid. And if I were putting my hope in just that person, could you imagine the devastation my soul would wreak if I was looking at them and saying, that's what my faith is dependent upon, their, their strength, their, their, their fortitude. I can't do that, and neither can you. You can't put all of your eggs in the human basket. Only Jesus is strong enough to carry the weight of your hopes, your dreams, and your future. As much as I want you to follow your Christian leaders, and you should, Remember, to follow them even as they follow Christ. Moses himself was a great leader. But don't forget, Moses was a murderer. He started off his life in a very rocky way, had all the privileges and the benefits, and yet he murdered some dude in straight-up cold blood. And if that weren't enough, you remember Moses never got to see the promised land. Do you remember why? Moses, despite the fact being faithful, he decued himself because when God told him to speak to the rock— to give water to the Israelites in the wilderness, he took the staff and struck the rock. And God said, Moses, you're no longer qualified to see the promised land because you did not uphold me as holy among the people. Instead of, uh, instead of doing what I said, you did what you thought was best because you were frustrated with the people and therefore you can no longer enter the promised land. You could see it from afar, but that's it. Even the best of men are men at best And what I really want from you, young person, is to have a firm and fixed hope in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Christian heroes are very helpful when they orient you to Christ and not themselves. But you must guard against anyone else that steals your affection and attention away from Jesus because ultimately, Jesus alone is worthy of your total allegiance and worship. And that should not be surprising, right? I don't want you to put your hope, your full hope in man. I don't want want you to make your faith contingent upon a pastor or several pastors or a leader. I don't want you to make your faith contingent upon your parents' faith. I need you to put your faith firmly in Christ. And then you can say with a clear conscience, I will follow them as they follow Christ. That's a good place to be. Not that you distrust everybody, not that you're expecting everybody to run away from Jesus, but that you recognize Jesus alone is worthy of your total allegiance and your worship, not man. That's why 
the preacher says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And you can just put the fill in the blank of anyone that you really highly respect and admire. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than C.S. Lewis, whoever it is that you esteem and, and love. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. On that note, let's close with, with this last half of verse 6 here. Now, I need you to see uh, this phrase in its context and to remember how this functions in your Christian life. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, the second half, which is what the B stands for. Um, when we say A, B, C, and D, we're looking usually at the, um, at the grammatical marks in the sentence. Um, sometimes we just use it as shorthand to say the second half of the verse. And that's how I'm using it here. Hebrews 3, chapters, uh, Hebrews 3 verse 6, letter B, second half of the verse. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This verse tells you what it means to be a Christian. This verse tells you how to endure forever in Christ. If you're ever concerned about not enduring through in Christ, here's how you know. You are his house if you hold fast your confession and your boasting in your hope. Of course, it raises the question, okay, what does that mean? How do I understand that? How do I impact that? Let, let me illustrate this. Now, if you have a lawn, the lawn doesn't stay cut and trimmed. And neither does it stay green unless you constantly give it attention. If you have a phone, the phone doesn't constantly stay charged. Sadly, you have to charge it up every night, sometimes multiple times a day, depending on how heavily you use it. If you wear clothes, they don't always smell nice. You have to wash them, guys, to keep them smelling nice so that they smell appropriate. Everything in life is in a state of disorder and decay. Second law of thermodynamics. Your faith is not exactly the same, but it does require that same mentality of nurture and attention. That's why I put it like this. Point number three, realize faith must be continually nurtured. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. It is evident that we belong to Christ if this is true about us, that we nurture our faith continually. Thinking about my high school years, as I was thinking about Doc Munderland, I also thought about the fact that around that time, could have been middle school, there were these things called Tamagotchis. You know what the Tamagotchi is? Okay, does anyone have a Tamagotchi out of curiosity? Anybody have one? No. Okay. Well, there are new waves of Tamagotchi. They're different things. But Tamagotchi, they look like this. And all the girls that I knew had one. In fact, some of the girls were so enthusiastic about this game that when the teacher said, hey, don't pull out your Tamagotchi, it's time for class, they would still do it. And they'd get detention just to protect their Tamagotchi pet. Now, here's the thing about Tamagotchi. Uh, your, your Tamagotchi is a little virtual pet that you had to feed and change. You know, three simple buttons, and you did that. You'd feed it, change it, and I'm not sure what else. If there's anything else, please don't tell me. I don't care. <laughs> feeding it and changing it. And it became this wild success. Like people were surprised at how successful this game became because people were crazy about protecting this non-existent virtual pet. They nurtured it. They cared for it. They, pr they protected it. And, and really, uh, it's a silly connection, but if we thought about our own souls in the same way that we thought about the Tamagotchis, it would make sense to us. Like, oh, my soul needs to be nurtured in the same way that this stupid little game required you to give it attention, constant attention, to keep it alive. Our faith is similar in that it requires constant attention to keep it alive and thriving. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So here's what it looks like to nurture your faith. First of all, to hold fast our confidence. 
to hold fast our confidence. Let's, let's break that down. I put it like this. Your faith must be continually nurtured through repeated reinforcement to hold fast our confidence. The word hold fast means to restrain, to possess. Uh, the word is used about the fourth soil, the good soil. In Luke chapter 8, verse 15, Jesus said that the good soil holds that seed fast in an honest and good heart and bears fruit with patience. That's the same word there, hold fast. Your job is to repeatedly reinforce your faith in Jesus. Repeatedly do this day by day. This is why DBR is so important. It's not because we're, we're so enthusiastic about our plan that we do together. It's because this is what solidifies your faith in Christ. It's not that the act itself is magical. It's that as you read and as you point your thoughts, your heart, and your affection to Jesus, your soul is edified and fed. Now, of course, you could do that wrongly. You could just read and check the box, and it doesn't make any difference in your life. But if you're reading the Scriptures with faith in Christ, seeking to nurture your faith in Christ, this is where the work of the Spirit is made manifest. He grows you. He changes you. He causes you to look to Jesus and have more adoration and more affection for Him. You need repeated reinforcement. One of the things that my... my, uh, my middle daughter does, is uh, she'll give me one of her toys, and she'll say, okay, um, I'm going to pull it out of your hands. She likes, she likes being stronger than I am, so I'll just I'll hold the toy, and then she'll pull on it, and sometimes I'll just let it go and let her fall, and it's funny, and then I'll, she'll come back, because I'm a good dad. Uh, but when I'm really holding on to it, if I'm going to hold on to that thing that she's trying to tug on, I have to constantly reinforce my grip by clutching it differently. I'll try to pull it closer and catch it and try to get my grip around it so that I can hold on to it. If I'm going to hold fast to that object, I need to constantly readjust my grip so that I'm able to sustain that. The same thing is true with your faith. Your faith is constantly being tugged at away from you. The world does not help you become a Christian. The world is not set up to have you love Jesus more. The world is set up to distract you, to, to take your money away from you so that you can make other people rich. The world is set up to cause you to look to the worldly things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the way the world works. So if you're going to maintain a close grip or a tight grip on your faith, you have to continually reinforce it. Bible reading is the obvious one, but think about your entire life, the whole totality of your attentional awareness. Where is that going? How are you reinforcing your faith in Christ. Because I promise you, if this is not a practice of yours, you're going to have a weak faith and perhaps non-existent faith. We are his house. We are made evident to be his house if we're holding fast our confidence. And our confidence is not in us. In fact, I like the way that he puts it here in the second half of verse 6. We're his house. We belong to Christ. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. I like that word boasting because it's a, typically a negative word. If I'm saying, look, I was boasting in my whatever, you're going to look at that person and be like, that dude's proud. But when we're boasting in the right thing, that's a good thing. That's a great thing. If I'm boasting in my hope in Christ, that is a great boast. In fact, that's why I put it this way. Um, not, we, we nurture our faith not only through repeated reinforcement, but by trusting Christ's work and not yours. I'm boasting in Jesus. I like that last song we say, Christ be magnified, right? That's, that's our boast. Christ is our boast. When you stand before God, it is not, I did all these things for you, God. Please take me to heaven. Your boast is Christ and him alone. He's my righteousness. He's my salvation. He's the one I look to. And I pray that, God, you make me to be more like him every single day of my life. Christ is your boast. And here's the thing. The ironic thing about this is that when your boast is Jesus Christ, you want to be more obedient. Your heart stirs and bleeds to do more for Christ. 
But if you get it twisted and you start looking at your Bible reading and your prayer time and your church attendance as being the thing that makes you right with God, your faith is going to become unstable and weak because you're unstable and weak. And I mean that with all the love in the world. <laughs> We're all unstable and weak in, in various respects. Faith must be continually nurtured, young person. Hear this, please. And part of that is being here among the gathered body, prioritizing this gathering. I write these for you. If I were preaching this to the main crowd in the auditorium, this would sound very different. I would say a lot of the same things, but this is for you. You need to recognize that when I'm preparing these sermons, I'm thinking about you, your faces. Be here. Prioritize the gathering of your Christian friends. Love your Bible. Love Christ through everything that you do. Someone asked me, Pastor Rod, if, if Hitler repented, would he, even he, be accepted by God? What would you say? As difficult as it would be for most of us to admit, yes. Yes, he would. Because despite the incalculable evil that Hitler committed, Christ's grace and his mercy and his ability to forgive comes from an infinite account of his infinite worthiness. And so, yes, even Hitler would be acceptable to God if he repented and trusted Christ. Young person, Jesus is better. Keep your eyes fixed on him and recognize that he is far greater than any hero of your faith. He deserves your utmost attention. You're coming off the mountain high. You're getting back into real life. You just got over COVID, some of you. You're working through things. I get it. You have to fight to keep Jesus the center of your life. I talked to you about Petit, right? Did you know that not only did Petit walk back and forth from the towers, he did it multiple times. And then, if that weren't enough, he sat down on the wire. He sat down on the wire. 3,100 feet in the air, however long, yeah, about 3,100 feet in the air. He sat on the wire. And then, if that wasn't a dazzling display enough, he also laid down on the wire. The dude was a weirdo. <laughs> He's still alive. But he laid down on the wire. And in fact, there was a movie about him that gives you a, a better description of what that might have looked like. This isn't it. This is the movie version. This is a screenshot of the movie. This isn't what it looked like. Or maybe this is what it looked like, but this isn't him. So people gave him lots of attention and said, okay, what's the, what's the secret of tightrope walking? How do you stay on the wire? How do you have such confidence on the wire when you clearly could have died, uh, Felipe Petit? And here's some of the things he said. He said, um, quoting him, or quoting about him, rather, as Felipe Petit explains, a never-ending monkish devotion to the task in hand is required. Rehearsing, practicing, perfecting the technique, relaxation is not permitted. There are no off-duty sessions for the tightrope walker. Nothing can be left to chance as... He says, chance is a thief that never gets caught. He explains that he had to have a monkish devotion to the task. And then he also says, um, work without stopping, we are told. Little by little, the wire must belong to you. A wire that at first is tethered near the ground, but which is rigged higher and higher as confidence is gained. And I thought, man, that is a good descriptor of the Christian life. We must have a monkish devotion to following Christ. 
There are no off days. There must be a sincere, focused time of giving our thoughts, our attention, our awareness to Jesus Christ and following him above and beyond any other person. Now, I'm sure Petit probably had lots of people in the circus past who were tightrope walkers that he admired and revered and said, yeah, I want to be like that guy one day. But when he's on the wire, he's not thinking of that dude. He's focused on the task. And then in his task, when he's focusing on his job, he has ultimate confidence in the wire. The wire is the only thing that stands between him and the ground, and his confidence is in the wire because he has so much history with that wire. He's practiced it over and over again. Our faith is very similar. You're exercising faith in Christ in smaller, thoughtful ways so that when Christ calls you to bigger, more, uh, more significant acts of faith, you trust the wire. You trust Christ because he's proven himself faithful over and over again in the little things, and you could trust him in the larger things. Jesus is better than tightrope walking. Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is better than your heroes. Jesus is better than any other way you would have spent your night tonight. This is better than that because Jesus is better. You want to honor the heroes that God puts in your life? That's great. I want you to. I want you to have godly heroes. But the way that you best honor them, like Moses, is to realize that the best heroes are pointing to Jesus. And you should point your heart to Jesus, and that's the best way that you can honor them. With that, I hope you have a great time in your small group. Let me pray for you. Uh, please wear your shirts at school. Tell people about Jesus. Because we're going to turn a page in the next week or two. And I trust it's going to be a good thing for us. Let's pray.